Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. Revelation chapter 14 verses 17 and 18, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our latest study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We've labeled this series, but what about? Because a lot of times, that's how the questions about the Christian faith start. So, we've noted before, Christianity is a faith that is firmly rooted in place and time. But that doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't have a supernatural dimension. It does. So, often, when people encounter the supernatural aspect of the Christian faith, they will ask questions like, but what about angels and demons? Or, but what about heaven and hell? These are usually subjects that are familiar to most people, but which are actually poorly understood. So, we're doing episodes on several of these subjects to see what the Bible actually has to say about them. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D.? Last time we began our discussion of what about angels. Are we going to continue that today? Well, hello to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. Thank you for joining us here today. And yes, to answer your question, I do want to continue today to talk about angels. We began this discussion the last time, but there are hundreds of times in the Bible where the term angel or angels is mentioned. So there's a lot to learn and talk about when it comes to angels. And we could probably do a number of different shows just on this topic, but we really don't have time as we're preparing this series to do that. So today we're just going to do one more show on the holy angels before we move on to the other side. By the other side, I take it you mean demons. Demons are also members of the angelic order, but the demons are the ones who, in the words of Jude, quote, kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. These he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Unquote. That's the King James Version. I like the phrase that the demons did not keep their estate. I like that phrase too, because I think it's very evocative and I think it speaks loudly to the fact that the demons, when they rebelled against God, they gave up something. It wasn't a cost free decision that they made, they literally abandoned their entire estate. Now, other versions of the Bible, when it talks about that particular verse, say that the demons abandoned their authority, or they did not stay within the limits of their authority. So, in our next show on Anchored by Truth, we want to talk about exactly what that means, especially as the demons fit into the Bible story as a whole. But for today, I want to finish talking about the positive side of the angelic order, the angels that did remain faithful to God and have now been confirmed in that state of holiness and faithfulness for all time. Well, let's get to it then. 
In our last episode, we talked a lot about the nature and attributes of angels. We also said that today we wanted to talk about what angels do or have done. So, we want to move from angelic attributes to angelic actions. Yes, but I do want to make one final point about angelic attributes that we didn't get to cover last time. You know, despite the large number of angels that various people encountered in the Bible, we know the names of only two of those angels. We know the Archangel Michael and the Messenger Gabriel. The name Michael means, who is like God. The name Gabriel means, God is my strength. But this does not include the names of angels mentioned in the Apocrypha, does it? No, it does not. The Apocrypha, just to remind our listeners, are not considered to be canonical by most of the Protestant churches, although the Roman Catholics and some of the Orthodox traditions do accept them as canonical. So, there are some other angelic names mentioned in the Apocrypha, such as Raphael and Uriel. Those do appear in some of the Apocryphal texts or other ancient texts from literature. In fact, some of the lists that contain names of angels will list as many as eight named angels. But among the 66 books of the Bible that's used by Protestants, only Michael and Gabriel are actually named. Does this mean that other angels do not have names, or that we just don't know them? Well, I would lean more towards the side that the other angels do have names, but they are just not recorded in the Bible. You know, in Luke 8, verse 30, also in Mark chapter 5, verse 9, there is the well-known encounter between Jesus and a man who was possessed by several demons. In speaking to the demons, Jesus asks, What is your name? Now, if other angels didn't have names, there wouldn't have been much point in Jesus asking that question. That makes sense. And the fact that angels have names reinforces the personal nature of angels. Angels aren't just sort of spiritual robots that mechanically move around the universe. The Bible is clear that angels had freedom of choice, just as humans do. The holy angels use their choice to be obedient to God. The demons use theirs to rebel. Yes, and that's a good way to start out talking about the activities or the functions that we see angels performing in the Bible. The holy angels are always seen doing things in the Bible that implement God's will or that serve God's purpose. There is no record in the Bible of any holy angel doing anything without either following an express command from God or doing something that directly furthers the plans of God. And quite often, the angels, when they're interacting with human beings, will tell who they're speaking with that they are there doing something at God's express command. An example of this in the Old Testament would be Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, where an angel says to Daniel, quote, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer, unquote. The first thing the angel did was to confirm to Daniel that he had come in response to Daniel's prayer. Yes. And a good New Testament example is found in Luke chapter 1. In verses 11 through 21 of chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to John the Baptist's father and said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayers. Your wife Elizabeth will have a son, and you must name him John. His birth will make you very happy and make many people glad. 
Your son will be a great servant of the Lord. I am Gabriel, God's servant, and I was sent to tell you this good news. Now you hear from those verses that Gabriel not only tells Zechariah that God had heard Zechariah's prayers, but Gabriel also told Zechariah that he, Gabriel, had been sent directly from God to Zechariah to give him the good news that he was going to have a son. So there's a very clear example of where an angel comes, speaks with a human being, and then tells that human being, I'm here expressly because God sent me to give you a message. So this points out something that is important for modern believers to know. The holy angels always act on God's instructions. The holy angels are very aware that God has a plan of salvation and that they have a role in that plan. And the angels would like to know more about that plan, but they are keenly aware that the plan is centered around human beings and not them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, Peter says, quote, Some prophets told how God would treat you with undeserved grace, and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved. They preached to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, who was sent from heaven, and their message was only for you, even though angels would like to know more about it, unquote. Yes, the holy angels are very aware that after they and their fallen cousins made their choice to either obey or disobey God, that they are now active witnesses to the unfolding drama of God's plan of redemption. And the angels certainly know that this unfolding plan of redemption is taking place within the physical realm. Now, the holy angels play their part in this drama by facilitating God's purposes. Now, the purposes that they act on, the purposes that they facilitate, those purposes may be for the salvation of believers or judgment of unbelievers. Now, of course, the fallen cousins of the holy angels, the demons, they're obviously trying to hinder the successful completion of the plan of salvation or to frustrate God's plans for judgment on those who don't believe. So again, this points out something very important for believers to understand. The Bible contains no reference to a holy angel acting on their own or outside of God's purposes or plans. Angels are described as performing a wide variety of functions. Some of the functions are hard for us to comprehend, at least at first. But those functions are always ones that are part of God's plan and purposes. And that's why it never makes any sense for a human being, for a believer, to direct any of our prayers towards an angel. Holy angels are only going to do what God tells them to do. And I certainly hope that no one would ever ask a demon for help. You know, there is no record in the Bible of any of God's people, any of God's prophets, or any of the people that the Bible describes as being commendable, directing prayers or petitions to an angel. Biblical prayers are always directed to God. Now, God may or may not elect to use his angels as a part of his response to a prayer, but the prayer itself must and should always be directed towards God himself. And we are specifically instructed not to worship angels. Biblical worship is reserved for God only. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, the Apostle John has encountered a particularly magnificent angel. So magnificent that John is overcome with the need to respond. John writes, quote, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. 
worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus, unquote. That's the New Living Translation. Right. And that verse comes right after a description of a great worship chorus that is taking place in heaven. The worship involves a vast crowd of redeemed believers and 24 elders who essentially represent the leadership of the human church and some pretty remarkable angels. So this is a vast worship chorus that is taking place in heaven. Now the angel that God was speaking to at that time He appeared to be sort of a guide who was helping John to comprehend the amazing scenes that had been unfolding before him. John kind of got caught up in all the worship that was going on around him and in front of him, and so John just fell at the angel's feet to express his awe and his amazement. But the angel's response to John falling at his feet very clearly shows that the holy angels serve and worship God only. As we should. And that scene in chapter 19 shows one of the more common functions of angels. They sometimes serve as guides, teachers, or couriers. In this scene, the angel is there to ensure that John records the events that God wants John to record. But earlier in Revelation, in chapter 10, verse 4, John is told not to write something down. That verse says, When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. These two verses, with very different instructions, are a very clear declaration that God is the one who decided what to put in Revelation, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible. Yes. So, as we heard in our opening scripture, Revelation is one of the books of the Bible where there is a great deal of angelic activity taking place. Revelation helps us see, also, the remarkable variety of tasks that angels have been assigned. Our opening scripture noted that there apparently is one angel that John sees who has specifically been given authority over some kind of fire. And then take another verse out of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 10, we see an angel acting as an unbelievably important herald. Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 says, Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand toward heaven. The angel said, There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced. And from that verse we see something else important. Angels apparently are not subject to the physical limits of creation the way we are. In Revelation chapter 10 verse 5, There is a description of an angel standing on water. In other parts of Revelation, angels are seen flying. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, we have the description of three flying angels. For instance, in verse 6, we hear, I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. But we really don't know whether these descriptions are intended to be taken literally, do we? I mean, we don't really know whether these verses are concerned with a real sky or a real sea. No, we don't. Many commentators think that some or most of Revelation is intended to be taken either poetically, symbolically, or allegorically. But even if that's true, even if there are portions of Revelation that are supposed to be treated as symbolically or poetically, 
God is still communicating important information to us about the angels in those descriptions. Remember that in the book of Revelation, it is God who is giving John the visions that he is seeing. And it is God who is inspiring John what to write. So God is telling us that angels, who are spiritual beings by their nature, can still interact with the physical creation. But as you noted, when the angels interact with the physical creation, they are not bound by the restrictions of the physical creation. In Genesis chapter 18, for instance, we have a scene where the father Abraham entertains three visitors that all commentators clearly identify as the Lord and two of his angels. Well, in chapter 18 of Genesis, those angels are shown as eating food in the way that normal human beings do. But in chapter 19, those same angels are shown as striking the men of Sodom with blindness. So in one chapter, those angels are interacting with the physical creation the same way that you or I do, consuming and eating food. But in the very next chapter, those same angels are clearly displaying a supernatural ability because they could strike all the men of Sodom simultaneously with blindness. So, in the Bible, angels are sometimes seen as interacting with the physical creation and abiding by the same boundaries which affect us. But at other times, angels do things that display supernatural control over the physical realm. You mentioned Genesis chapters 18 and 19, but the same phenomena occurs in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, the Apostle Peter has been arrested and he is in jail. He is linked to two of his guards by locks and chains. An angel appears to rescue Peter. Apparently, Peter is a pretty heavy sleeper because the angel has to hit Peter on the side to wake him up. That's a physical interaction. But then the chains just fall off of Peter's wrists, and as the angel is leading Peter out of the jail, they pass by guard posts with no one noticing. Finally, a locked iron gate to the street just unlocks and opens by itself. These are clearly supernatural manipulations of the natural things. Right. And we should note that even though the Bible sometimes contains descriptions of angels acting within the physical creation, the Bible sometimes contains descriptions of angels who are acting entirely in the supernatural realm. So sometimes the Bible contains descriptions of angels acting entirely within the supernatural realm, while other times Angels will act within the physical realm, within the natural realm, but even while the angel is in the natural realm, those angels often display a supernatural degree of control over the natural realm, over the physical creation. But we really don't know whether this ability is inherent in them or whether it's imparted to them for specific assignments, do we? And in our last episode, we noted that the angelic order apparently has different groups and hierarchies. I suppose it's possible, different levels or groups, to have different abilities. Well, I think that's entirely possible. But I do think that we get some indication that the holy angels do inherently possess the ability to interact within the physical realm while not being bound by its limitations. Because even some demons displayed that ability, and God would certainly not be specifically empowering demons, any demons, for a particular mission, and demons would never be sent on missions for God. An example of that is in Luke chapter 8, where the demon-possessed homeless man has been living in a cemetery. When Jesus confronted the demons, the demons asked for permission to enter a nearby herd of pigs. After Jesus gave them permission, they did so, and then drowned the pigs in the Sea of Galilee. 
So the demons also displayed the ability to act supernaturally while they are interacting with the physical creation. Yes. So, you know, all of this calls to mind the change that occurred to Jesus' human body after Jesus' resurrection. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus certainly displayed the ability to act either naturally or supernaturally while he was interacting with the physical creation. Jesus' fully human body had undergone some kind of a change after his death and resurrection that was manifested in a new set of attributes that Jesus possessed that he didn't display before the resurrection. Now, Jesus could still do everything after the resurrection that he had done before. Jesus could still eat. He could cook. He could touch and be touched. But also, after his resurrection, in addition to doing those normal things, Jesus appeared and disappeared from rooms without there ever being any description of him walking in or out. But Jesus had displayed the ability to perform miracles even before his death and resurrection. Yes, he certainly did. Before his resurrection, Jesus performed his miracles, if you will, in the same way that many other biblical figures, such as Moses or Elijah, had performed miracles. In fact, it would be better to say that Moses or Elijah did not really perform miracles, but rather that God performed miracles through them. But after his resurrection, things seem to have changed in terms of Jesus' ability to interact with the physical creation. So the point is that after his resurrection, Jesus displayed the same kind of relationship with the physical world that angels seem to have had all along. This, by the way, does not mean that somehow Jesus became an angel. Ever since the Incarnation, Jesus has had a dual nature. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. We probably can't understand all that means, but the dual nature of Christ is a truth that the Bible clearly teaches. And before his death and resurrection, Jesus' human body was fully human. Jesus got hungry and tired. He slept and cried. He ate food, touched people, and fully identified with his followers. Yes, and even though most human beings will never perform miracles, there have been other human beings besides Jesus who did perform miracles, including, by the way, the miracle of the resuscitation of a dead body. Now, I say resuscitation rather than resurrection because Jesus' resurrection was a very special event within biblical history. When Jesus helped resuscitate Lazarus, for instance, Lazarus was resuscitated for some period of time, but later on during his life, Lazarus was going to die. Elijah and the Apostle Paul both also helped revive people after they had died. But those people that Elijah and Paul helped resuscitate, they were still going to die sometime later in their lives. Jesus, after his resurrection, was never going to die ever again. And the same thing will be true of us after our eventual resurrection, after Jesus' second coming. Now, Jesus was, of course, the most prolific miracle worker of all time. But before his death, the manner in which Jesus performed his miracles was entirely consistent with the way that other prophets had performed their miracles. But after his death, as you noted, Jesus' relationship with the physical creation appears to have become much more like that which the angels had enjoyed all along. So the major point is that angels are ordinarily creatures who inhabit the unseen realm, but on occasion the angels can cross the boundary that separates the realms of the seen and the unseen. But holy angels only cross the boundary at God's express command, or when they have been dispatched to carry out a task related to either salvation 
or God's holy judgment. The fallen angels also have crossed the boundary, but when they do it, it's always to inflict pain or anguish on human beings or to try to interrupt the progress of the plan of redemption. Yes, and to me, the Bible's very clear recognition of the fact that the created order consists of both a seen and an unseen realm is critical to us having confidence that the Bible is God's Word. How so? I think there are a lot of people who would regard the Bible's description of angels, demons, and supernatural phenomena as a liability rather than an asset. I'm sure there are, but I don't. I mean, let's face it, we are all aware that there are some things that occur within the physical creation that defy explanation by physical factors alone. Human awareness of the supernatural is real, and if the Bible did not give us a clear basis upon which to frame at least a basic understanding of such supernatural phenomena, well, the point is we would all then be left at the mercy of the imagination of men to provide explanations for those sometimes inexplicable phenomena. In other words, the Bible, in providing us with a clear awareness that an unseen supernatural realm exists, actually helps us from falling prey to false explanations that the world might offer. Furthermore, knowing that there are supernatural beings who would gladly deceive us, if that is possible, helps us to be on our guard. And while the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions or perhaps fully satisfy our curiosity about the supernatural realm, we are told enough for us to be able to remain faithful. We have enough information to be able to handle unexplained phenomena, and we have enough information to guard ourselves against unholy influences. Right. And as we've mentioned, we're going to discuss the fallen angels, the demons, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth. But just to be sure that everyone understands, because I don't want anyone being nervous before we can get to that episode, a demon may certainly influence a believer's behavior, but a demon most certainly cannot occupy or take possession of a Christian. They cannot take possession or occupy someone who has accepted Christ as their Savior. The Bible is very clear that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All authentic believers in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not about to share his domain with demons, so there's no reason for any authentic Christian to ever fear that they're going to somehow be demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit is not going to permit that to happen. So we can all rest secure in that comfort until we can talk about the subject of the fallen angels more completely in our next episode of Anchored by Truth. Well, today and last time, we made the holy angels the centerpiece of the discussion. As R.D. just said, next time, we'll turn our attention to the angels who didn't remain faithful to God. The goal of all of this discussion is to help people see that the Bible is consistent throughout its entire text and that the Bible provides what we need to lead holy and faithful lives. The remarkable unity of the Bible is evidence of the Bible's own supernatural point of origin. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Since our kids are back in school, today we want to listen to a prayer for all of those who may need a little extra help as they prepare for upcoming tests. Prayer Before Taking a Test Heavenly Father, you have been so good and kind to me. I praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. You rule the universe 
Yet you love us so much that you care about the parts of even our daily lives that trouble us. Thank you for being a merciful Father who carries our burdens. Lord, you know I have a test coming that has been weighing on my heart. I know that tests are a part of learning and education. You know so well that tests can be very difficult for some of your children, including me. Lord, I pray that you would help me with this test. I pray you would help me to prepare effectively for the test. Help me to take advantage of all the books, study aids, and guides that I can find. Direct me to my fellow students, teachers, or friends who have an understanding in this area and who can assist me. Please defeat any tendencies I have towards discouragement or fear because these are the tools of the enemy. When I am in the test, please send the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind all that I have learned. Keep me calm and help me to focus on simply doing my best. My joy and hope are in Jesus. I pray and give thanks in His precious name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.